Hello and welcome to the WAMDA podcast. My name is Triska Hamid and I'm the editor at WAMDA. Now, when Ben Goetzel came to the WAMDA office, we could not pass the opportunity to record a podcast with him. Ben is one of the leading artificial intelligence or AI architects in the world. He's the founder of AI blockchain company Singularity Net and chief scientist at Hanson Robotics, the makers of Sophia the Robot. So Ben, we've seen many countries, particularly in the European Union, who've adopted a rather cautious approach to AI, whereas in the Middle East, we appear to be embracing it a lot more. Should we be cautious or should we embrace it? Humanity has gotten where it is today precisely by not being too cautious and by repeatedly leaping into the unknown with new technologies and new social practices. So we developed language and fire and the wheel and machinery, electricity, agriculture and computers, the internet. In none of these cases did we know what impact these were going to have or have a really a coherent plan going forward, right? So that's that's what humanity does, and that's why we're different than all the other species of, of, of animals on, on, on the planet. And AI is not all that different than these other cases, but it's, uh, you know, it's an even bigger leap into, into the unknown. But asking whether we should leap into the unknown or not, that's sort of an imponderable philosophical question, which is interesting to think about, but the bottom line is we're going to, because there's too much practical, economic, and humanitarian advantage in AI technology. It's, it's going to make people too much money and do too much good, so humanity isn't going to stop it. What's the right way to go about it? Should we have regulations in place, or should we just allow it to develop as, as it would without any interference? There will be regulations of various forms in various jurisdictions but in the end you know the un is is pretty ineffectual and we have a situation of competition among different nation states so if one jurisdiction places too many restrictions on ai development that will cause other jurisdictions that are more liberal toward ai to advance much faster, become more sophisticated, get more money, get better weapons. So for that reason, I don't think regulations and restrictions on AI development are going to be all that onerous because in, in the end, people like progress and wealth to a greater degree than they, than they fear change. What's the, is there a bigger cost to that in terms of, okay, you've accumulated wealth, your life becomes very efficient. But is there a cost to that? There's a cost to everything. And there's, of course, there's a risk-reward trade-off in technology development, just as in, in financial trading, right? And that's really the balance that, that we're looking at here. Because with AI, the potential reward is essentially infinite. I mean, if it goes off well, then human beings will be living in essentially a utopia compared to life now. We'll have tremendous material abundance where everything we need is manufactured by AIs and we'll be able to modify our own minds and brains however we want so we get rid of suffering, pain, and, and, and mental illness and get rid of death and disease, be able to remain in human form or upgrade ourselves into some transhuman form. On the other hand, the downside is, is also severe, potentially, as many Hollywood movies have, 
have pointed out, I mean, humanity could just be exterminated in favor of some other robot race, or you could have AIs that are not that intelligent, but just smart enough to be soldiers and policemen used to enforce some fascist order or something. So we have tremendous possible upside, tremendous possible downside, right? And so that's high risk and and high reward. And, you know, if if we'd remained cavemen, lower risk and lower reward in, in, in many senses anyway. I mean, I, I've never been a caveman. I can't say they, they didn't have a rewarding life in, in some way, but I, I mean, I'm... Less pollution. Yeah, definitely, definitely less pollution. And I mean, there's many anthropologists say that, you know, Stone Age people worked two to four hours a day and spent most of their time socializing and, and, and having fun. So, I mean, if you didn't get hit by some infectious disease, you may have had a much more enjoyable life than the, the average modern person. On the other hand, what can you do by getting absolute control to rewrite your own brain and body and fuse your mind with a superhuman AI or have Wi-Fi telepathy with everybody else, right? I, I mean... I think many of the downsides of modern society may be overcome as we get more and more advanced technology. But we've got a difficult transition period to get get through now. So even even if my, my visions are going to ultimately be realized and we get to an amazing human-slash-transhuman utopia, there's going to be, let's say, one to five decades of quite complex and, and chaotic dynamics before we get there. So can transhumans die or are they immortal? The issue is really not do you die, but do you die involuntarily? I mean, I don't, I don't want to be forced to live forever if should I get bored with it at some point. But I think involuntary death will be a thing of the past once we have more advanced technologies. I mean, just as now you can back up a file on many different hard drives and, and computers. So it's very hard to delete something from the Internet, right? In, in the same way, once you can back up your mind file all over the place, it'll be very hard to, very hard to delete you, even if you want to delete yourself. It's a little bit like that Black Mirror episode where the lady, her boyfriend dies and she orders a robot with his online personality. So all his Facebook posts, his phone calls yeah. are recorded, and, but it gets stuck in time, so it doesn't evolve it's it's your identity right but once you have advanced ai then you could just take someone's state and embed it in a a simulacrum of their brain and then it will it will continue to does that not terrify you no not at all okay what what what, does it terrify you (laughs) i think so i I think it's it's perhaps a um a fear of death i feel is a, a motivator for this that to me, it's more love of life than a fear of death. I mean, I would rather not die, but I'm not paralyzed by a fear of death. Otherwise, I would never, you know, rock climb or scuba dive or do anything dangerous, right? So I, I think there are some transhumanists who are paralyzed by a fear of death. I mean, I know a few people who they don't want to fly, they don't leave their house much, they just want to keep themselves alive till the singularity when they can get the immortality pill. But I mean, most of us who want to live forever aren't so much like that. It's more that living is good and we want more and more life. And I don't think I'm motivated in my own actions by a fear of death to any any significant degree. I mean, I'm, I'm motivated by just wanting to do more and more stuff and learn more and more stuff. And Before you die, though, right? Well... 
if I weren't going to die, I don't think that would change anything. I mean, it may be that people now are motivated somewhat by fear of death, but I think if the blight of involuntary death were lifted from humanity, people would rapidly find some other way to motivate themselves, which would probably be better, because I think that motivation, it is real for some people, but it probably causes a lot of psychological perversions uh, along along the way, right? Back to AI, you were one of the engineers behind Sophia, the robot. Yeah, I led the software development team for the Sophia robot for some time. How does one pick a personality for a robot? Well, that's an artistic choice. So David Hansen, who was the mastermind behind Sophia's face and her hardware design, I mean, David conceived her personality, and then the character authoring team in Hanson Robotics sort of sculpted what she would say and how she would react based on the personality that David Hanson laid out. So for now, that's really an artistic more than a more than a technological thing. And David worked for Disney for a while and came from sort of a sculpture and a film background, which which gave him the right mindset for for character creation. One could take a more automated approach to character creation, certainly, which which would be interesting to use the AI just to come up with, with new personalities. But right now, both the face of Sophia and the personality of Sophia are really David Hansen's artistic creations. And those of us on the tech side of Hansen Robotics were just serving to realize David David's artistic vision. But that would reflect quite a lot of human bias in this. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And how does one get away from human bias in robotics and AI? I mean, I I don't really understand the difference between human bias and humanity as as a whole. So let's say you create some other intelligent system that isn't a human, but is smarter than a human and more compassionate than a human and can you know, can fly through space and leap tall buildings in a single bound, right? Then why should humans continue to exist at all? That's human bias, we, that we care about humans humans whatsoever, right? So David Hansen sculpted Sophia to look a way he thought looked nice, right? And, well, you have to sculpt something. So yeah, that's biased to his particular taste. But if you make her face look like something else, then that's biased to, to somebody else's taste. So I, 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 don't, I don't see... Reflecting someone's taste and preference is not, to me, a problem. Now, of course, some societies decide some biases are a problem, right? And if an AI reflects biases that some society doesn't like, then people complain about it. And really, to me, the issue there is lack of transparency in in what's going on. It's a sense of values and what kind of values you instill into the algorithms, I guess. Because in one part of the world, they can have quite conservative values or views towards certain groups of people. Well, right. So in in, in the U.S., if you're a black male convicted of a crime, you'll probably be sent to jail for a long time. If you're particularly lower class black male, if you're an upper class white male convicted of the same crime, then you'll probably get a very short sentence. So if you trained an AI to imitate the action of human judges in the U.S., Probably the AI would just look, okay, they're black and poor, send them to jail for 10 years. They're white and rich, okay, suspend all charges or something, right? And so then, then you'd say, well, the AI is bad, but it's actually just reflecting what you, what you trained it to do. So 
in that case, the AI has no contextual understanding, right? So, I mean, the, the, the AI is really just imitating the training that was given. So the culpability is with whoever prepared the training data for the AI. Now, as AIs get more and more intelligent and they're really making their own judgments, I mean, then, then you'll have a subtler issue. And I would imagine most likely AIs at that level are going to be less perversely biased than human beings on average. Like if, if you gave an AI with real general intelligence and contextual understanding the legal code, the AI is not going to have any particular reason to apply it differently for black people or for, or for white people. And it's probably going to be more impartial according to the, the letter of the law than, than people are. So I think the long-term problem you'll have there is maybe we don't like the letter of our law. Some interpretations of the law we view as, as malevolent, like putting black people in jail longer than white people. But there are probably many other cases where humans interpret the law in a certain subjective way that's different than, than what it says if you interpret it most literally. So we're, we're probably going to need to go revisit a whole bunch of our legal codes once you have AIs that are actually interpreting what's written down there. But I mean, it's a global technology and legal codes are specific to particular jurisdictions or countries. So how do you transcend those kind of legal barriers in a global technology? Well, I, I think it will be easier to do cross-jurisdictional law with AIs that can understand all the different laws in their own mind at once. A human lawyer has a, has a hard time with that. Because, I mean, I, I think if you speculate about a sort of utopic future, I don't think it will be one where there's the same laws for all people. I mean, you'd imagine that groups of people who want to enter into a certain social contract can do so. So then you'll have different codes of behavior and different legal codes in different parts of the planet, maybe even more so than now. But an AI can suck all those into its brain and, and translate between them. It shouldn't shouldn't be a big problem compared to many of the other problems such an AI will face. So I really think the issues we're seeing now with you know, supervised machine learning systems reflecting the biases of the training data fed into them, I think these that can be a real problem right now, so I don't want to minimize it. But I think five to ten years from now, that, that will be irrelevant because we'll have AIs that have more contextual understanding and can understand the overall purpose of what they're doing rather than just parroting back the peculiarities in the training data they're, they're provided with. Are we going to get to a stage where everyone has to behave themselves because there is surveillance? What I think will happen personally, what I think will happen eventually is universal surveillance will cause restrictive legal and behavioral codes to be relaxed because once everything everyone does is basically public we'll realize that nobody obeys the rules anyway so then you have two choices you like impose fascist homogeneity on everyone or you just drop the restrictive that's, that's going to have huge political implications yeah but of course but but that's i mean at the same time you're gonna have AIs and robots take over essentially all jobs so people don't have any work to do. And I mean, you're going to have the end of death and disease due to AI and nanotechnology fixing all the problems with the body. So, I mean, we're going to have a lot of An overpopulation changes. in that sense. If no one dies and no one's doing anything, what do you do with billions of people? Virtual reality video games, mostly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I, I, I would say overpopulation would have to be certainly thought about, but it's not clear that that will be a problem because what, I mean, what happens now on the whole wealthier nations reproduce less, right? Now that, that does reverse among billionaires who seem to have a lot of different kids. So, I mean, we might need to have a situation where there, there's restrictions on how many kids you can have. So each person doesn't have 500 children. But you might speculate that if you have abundant resources and you're not going to die, then the pressure to rapidly reproduce and make 20 kids that you have to take care of is probably going to be going to be much less than in, in, in the current situation right so it's it's not clear that that will be will be a real problem but of, of, of course if it is all this advanced technology will probably let us colonize the other planets anyway so you can always say earth earth is full if you want to make some babies go to the go to the mars base or something is this likely to create a divide between the wealthier nations that can afford this kind of technology and those that can't? The divide we see happening on the planet now isn't really between nations so much as between classes within each nation. So, I mean, in Africa, say, in Ethiopia, where we have an office, there's a remarkable number of rich people in luxury cars out in the street. There's a guy who lives in the top four floors of the Sheraton with a huge entourage, right? I mean, there's, there's haves and have-nots in every country, and we are seeing now as a consequence of increasing automation and technology across the board i mean what what we're seeing is that gap being exacerbated right as many of the jobs done by the lower class get eliminated by automation and then those who can design new machines or operate the machines or manipulate the money that pays for the machines, th these guys are getting more and more money, while the people whose jobs are being obsolete about automation are getting less and less money. And that, that will continue for a while, but the limiting case is where the AI and robots do all the work, right? Th then what happens, right? The natural limit will be there's like 10,000 rich people who own all the robot factories and mines and just use them to produce luxury goods for themselves. Well, everyone else rummages around in the garbage and subsistence farms. Presumably, there will be some shift in the social order before we actually get there. And you can already see nudging in that direction, like Andrew Yang, who's one of the Democratic presidential candidates in the U.S. now. Part of his political platform is $1,000 U.S. per month for every U.S. citizen. So already you have mainstream politics starting to discuss the notion of just universal basic income for everyone. So does that mark the triumph of capitalism or the downfall of capitalism? I mean, capitalism has always been a strange abstraction to me because if you look in the US or Western Europe or South Korea or really anywhere, you have a large role for the state in regulating companies and in, in driving research that turns into the technology that, that companies monetize. So, I mean, it, certainly it will be a success both for modern welfare state capitalism and for the, the weird capitalist socialism that we have in China, right? Because each of these is contributing a lot, I mean, as compared to monarchies, which are, which are contributing less, right? So certainly it's success for capitalism. But I mean, if you go back to Karl Marx, capitalism was viewed in the Marxist view as a, a phase that society would, would, would go through, right? So I, I think from that perspective, you, you would view it as 
exactly what Marx says, you know, capitalism proceeds until it obsoletes itself through its own success. And th that's probably what we're looking at. How does it feel you're creating these technologies, you know, you're thinking about hundreds of years in the future, but right now on Earth, we have wars, we have well, I think, famine. I think so this is a couple of decades in the future, not hundreds of years okay. in the future. I think things are going to change much faster than, than most people recognize. How do you tally that? I mean, some might argue maybe we should focus on ending wars. I think often when you have a difficult dilemma, the best approach is to make the dilemma obsolete by changing the, the background against which the dilemma occurs. And you, you look at something like the situation in, in Syria. I mean, how do you actually end that war without just killing a huge number, a huge number of people? It's, it's quite difficult because the reason that war exists isn't just Syria. It's, uh, it's power rivalry between U.S. And, and Russia and a whole bunch of other, other nations around, right? So, but if we change the fundamental economic basis of, of, of humanity, then the motives for this kind of war may, may diminish considerably. Let's say once dependence on fossil fuels has gone, then all the dynamics in the, in the Middle East will sh and Russia will shift tremendously, right? Are we going to finally have peace in the Middle East? Yeah, we, we will once we get peace everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. and I, I think right now, you know, differences between cultures and belief systems are tangled up with struggles over resources. And once the struggles over resources are diminished by technology-enabled abundance, then the cultural and, and belief differences may be, may be ironed out more easily. When you are developing your technologies, do you ever sit back and think this could be used for evil or, you know, criminals can use this to do something bad? Or does that just not occur? In the well, thought process? It's, it's not just an idea. It's, it's very clear, right? So, I mean, you have, say, face recognition. I mean, that's used to stop criminals from stealing stuff and to find criminals who hurt people or, or stole things. And, I mean, having cameras in schools... This will stop kids from being abused in schools in many cases, which, which is good. On the other hand, that same technology can allow you know, the authorities to stomp down on nonconformist kids and to force them to obey meaningless and oppressive, oppressive rules. So, I mean, it's a reality right now that, that AI technologies are, are good, both for things I find beneficial and for things that, that I find negative right i mean drones the same way right i mean drones can go over a forest and see when it's going to burn down and they can allow you to stop that when that's the right thing to do they can catch poachers who are killing large animals in, in africa but the same drones can you know identify people who are from some ethnic group someone else doesn't like and then shoot them with a machine gun welded onto the drone. So, I mean, right now, that's the case. The same technology is used for good and, and bad. And, and that's the same thing like with the mobile phone I have in my hand right now, right? I mean, that's, that, that is used for, for, for good and bad as, as, as well. So that, that's, that's the way it goes. So you, you could argue that the first priority should be to awaken humanity out of its stupor of self-misunderstanding and then once you have more aware alive awake and compassionate human beings then advanced technologies can be deployed in a way that's more toward the 
you know, compassionate and broadly beneficial side. The problem is if half the world decided to stop developing advanced technology so as to work on purifying their minds, then the other half of the world is keeping on to develop that advanced technology as, as fast as possible and probably will start sending killer drones to, to blow up all the blissfully meditating and awakened, awakened people in the former half, right? So who is actually leading right now in AI technology development? Well, the U.S. is leading. In, uh, and the U.S. is where AI essentially originated with some major contributions from Western Europe also. But I would say the margin by which the U.S. is ahead of other places is gradually decreasing. And I mean, China certainly is, is catching up rapidly, I mean, especially in computer vision, but to some extent in other areas. And I think Russia is sort of the sleeping giant in AI because Russia has been doing AI since the 1960s and they haven't really... They don't really sell it. Well, they, they haven't been doing large-scale practical AI projects to the extent that the U.S. and China have, but they have tremendous AI expertise. And now they're in the last year or so, they're starting to, to get, get organized in the, in, the, in the AI space. And there's some large-scale, like AGI, Artificial General Intelligence Initiatives, starting out in Russia now. So it's, I think that the U.S. still has a, has a lead, but certainly things are, are, are evening out. And for conceptual development, it's really been U.S., Russia, Western Europe, and Japan. And almost all AI algorithms and methods came from those places. But China has been making great advances just in scalable application of, of AI algorithms. So what impact is that likely to have overall with these different countries coming in with their own AI? Well, I think given the perversities of human psychology, the competition between different nations is going to make progress go faster. That, that, that will be the main impact. And the AI research community is still very open and international. So new AI algorithms are published in peer-reviewed journals. Most of it's put in open source code that's put in repositories like, like GitHub. So... On the whole, we see fairly open sharing on the fundamental innovation level, even though there are proprietary silos for the applications of AI on specific data sets and run on large amounts of, of processors. So I think on the whole, this competition in application coupled with cooperation on core science and algorithms, you know, that's driving things forward quite rapidly and looks like it will, it will continue to do so. And where do we stand in the Middle East? Do we have anything to brag about in terms of AI development or are we just consumers? To my knowledge, the Middle East has not yet been really a hub of, of AI innovation, nor of AI application, really. I mean, I'd say China has been at the forefront of AI application along with the US. And for innovation, it's those places plus Western Europe, Japan, Russia. Middle East certainly has advanced a long way ahead of where it was like 10 or even five years ago, right? So there, there, are, there are now AI projects that are, are 
going in, in the Middle East, but I'd say they're, they're earlier stage than what you see in, in, in the U.S. or China. And it'll be interesting to see how that advances in, in, in the next few years. Certainly there is there's the wealth needed to drive AI development, and there's, and there's the will to drive AI development. The question will be if, if that wealth can be deployed in, in the appropriate way, because it's, uh, you know, people with expertise in AI are in, in very high demand throughout the world now. So, I mean, in many cases, money isn't the main driver of the AI experts either. So it's not enough to allocate a large amount of money to, to an AI project to make it make it come off effect, effectively. But, the, the, you know, the organization has to be right so that you're doing something really interesting and cool and you're, you're innovating and, and that innovation draws in, draws in the right talent. So what is it that motivates you? That motivates me? Yeah. Because you do a lot. Yeah, I do, I do a lot. I'd say probably curiosity above, above everything else. I, I like learning new things and build, building and discovering new things. And then AI is such an important technology Then it goes beyond just intellectual curiosity and the love of building stuff. And, you know, you, you realize working on AI technology in the world right now, that what you're doing could have a tremendous impact for the, for the better or the worse. And of course, then I would like to do what I can to nudge the applications of, of AI in, in, a, in a beneficial direction. And I mean, that's, that's the main reason I haven't taken a position at a big tech company at, at, at this point, because I, I just, I mean, I've had plenty of offers, but I haven't seen a situation where I really felt that like if we succeeded at getting a general intelligence within that big company, it's really going to be used to direct humanity in the optimal way rather than in a more n narrow way just to maximize shareholder value of that company. So I'm, I want to develop general intelligence that's smarter than people, but to do so in a way that's going to have the broadest benefit for people, for the rest of the environment on Earth, and for the and for the AIs, and that's hard. But I think that's best done by making the AI in a way that's not controlled by any one party, be it a company or a nation, or or, or by me. I mean, I, I think I think it should be controlled by a more sort of open and and, and decentralized network. So that's I'm sort of. Trying to reassure. I'm making my job doubly hard because making a thinking machine is hard enough. Making one that's decentralized in its control and, and governance at first is even harder. But then once it gets off the ground, then it may be easier because you have a huge network of, of people and machines all cooperating to advance the intelligence of the thing. Well, for humanity's sake, I hope you succeed. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you very much for your time, Ben.